Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for Thursday, October the 26th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Linda Lundgren. For the first hour, we'll cover local news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. And at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodds Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5 p.m., you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the broadcast rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear readings from the Iowa Source on the Iowa Hour. At 9 p.m., it's Golden Radio. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. The AccuWeather forecast says very warm today with a couple of showers and a thunderstorm. Winds south-southwest, 10 to 20 miles per hour. Today's high is expected to be 73 degrees with a low of 46. Tomorrow looks like a high of 51 with a low of 32. It'll be breezy and cooler. Saturday's only 43 degrees for the high and 29 degrees for the low. Mostly cloudy and a shower. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday all have highs in the 40s and lows in the mid-20s to upper to mid-30s. Sunrise today, 7.39 a.m. Sunset tonight at 6.18 p.m. Moonrise at 5.19 p.m. And moonset at 4.50 a.m. Headlines on the front page of the register. House picks Johnson as new speaker. Guidelines coming for Iowa's book ban rules and Benton County fires its entire health board over budget hike. Now, here's Linda with our first article. I'll read about the feature story of picking Johnson as the new speaker. The Louisiana Republican gains enough votes on the first round to secure the gavel. The fourth time was at last the charm. After 22 days, four nominations, and countless closed-door meetings, House Republicans finally found a unity candidate for speaker, Representative Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana. Not a single GOP lawmaker voted against Johnson. The tally was 220 to 209, with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, on the losing end. The People's House is back in business, Johnson said. Would y'all like to get right into governing? Representative Patrick McHenry, Republican of North Carolina, served as the Speaker Pro Tem after a handful of Republicans ousted former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, earlier this month. But the interim role didn't carry official powers, so the lower chamber could not consider legislation or work on crucial priorities, such as funding packages, to avoid a government shutdown. <coughs> the paralysis tested voters' patience a recent USA Today Suffolk University poll found. An overwhelming 67% said the House should elect a speaker as soon as possible. The Louisiana Republican now has a monumental task, mending the deep divisions that have plagued the House Republican Conference since it took control of the House in January 
and that were on full display in the three weeks of bitter infighting and turmoil. He will have to guide the fractious conference through key legislative priorities that include averting a government shutdown and passing a foreign aid package to key allies such as Israel and Ukraine. As its first order of business, the lower chamber began debating a resolution condemning Hamas's attack on Israel and reiterating U.S. support for Israel. Compared to the other party leaders, Johnson, 51, is a dark horse. His rise to speakership was so rapid that his wife, Kelly Johnson, could not book a flight to Washington fast enough to be in the chamber for his election. A Shreveport native, Johnson is the first House Speaker from Louisiana. He is a deputy whip, vice chair of the House Republican Conference, and constitutional lawyer known for his fiery exchanges on the House Judiciary Committee. Johnson was a state representative for two years before being elected to Congress in 2016, where he quickly rose in rank. In addition to judiciary, Johnson served on the House Armed Services Committee and chaired the Republican Study Committee. Johnson earned bachelor's and law degrees from Louisiana State University. He and his wife have been married for 24 years and have four children. In his first remarks to the House as Speaker, Johnson promised to reach across the aisle to address the country's issues. He largely focused on institutional trust compared to conservative policy priorities, vowing to restore people's faith in this House. As Speaker, Johnson will chart a new path, he told colleagues in a letter last weekend. The country, he wrote, is facing one of the most fateful moments in its history, the attack on Israel, emboldened foreign adversaries, high national debt, a southern border that is overrun, and more. I have a clear vision and plan for how to lead us through these unprecedented challenges, he wrote. In particular, he offered an ambitious timeline to avert a government shutdown. Johnson proposed to put forward a short-term stopgap funding bill to buy lawmakers more time to hash out long-term spending. The short-term bill would run until either January 15th or April 15th, depending on what can obtain conference consensus, he wrote. Johnson outlined seven priorities in all. Restore trust, advance a comprehensive policy agenda, promote individual members, engage members, build external coalitions, message effectively, and grow the GOP majority. But it was not a foregone conclusion that Johnson would win the floor vote. It takes only a majority of the party's lawmakers to win the nomination, but with the Republican House majority so slim, its nominee needed near-unanimous support to actually get the job. Three times this month, the House conference chose a speaker, only to have him withdraw due to lack of votes. This time, however, the conference was passionately optimistic. Democracy is messy sometimes, but it is our system. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority, is united, Johnson said Tuesday night, after receiving his party's nod, flanked by an exuberant conference cheering his name. Before the vote Wednesday, lawmakers were already lining up for photos with Johnson. Representative Elise Stefanik, the number four ranking House Republican, nominated Johnson on the House floor to a standing ovation from nearly the whole GOP conference, a display of unity that had been absent for three weeks. 
Today is the day House Republicans will humbly look at our hearts and elect Mike Johnson as the Speaker of the People's House, Stefanik said, praising Johnson's tenure in Congress. Mike epitomizes what it means to be a servant leader. The decision was not without controversy. In nominating Jeffries, Representative Pete Aguilar, Democrat of California, went after Johnson for voting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. This has been about one thing. This has been about who can appease Donald Trump, Aguilar said. Thank you, Linda. Next, guidelines coming for Iowa's book ban rules. Department sets its first deadlines for new policy. This is written by Samantha Hernandez of the Des Moines Register. After months of clamoring by public school administrators, Iowa Department of Education officials have set the first in a series of deadlines for eagerly awaited state guidance educators say they need to navigate a new law that orders them to remove books depicting sex and restricts teaching about gender identity. Since Senate File 496's passage earlier this year, education officials and advocates have pushed for the Iowa Department of Education to give the state's 325 school districts a playbook for how to comply with the sweeping and controversial law. Left to seek their own legal guidance, some schools have removed hundreds of books, while others are requiring parents and guardians to give permission before a child can be called a nickname. Others have waited, hoping for direction from the state before the law's penalties go into effect January 1st. Here is what we know about the call for the Iowa Department of Education to release guidance for Senate File 496. What is the timeline for releasing guidance? The Iowa Board of Education has until December the 28th to begin the rulemaking process for Senate File 496. Heather Doe, the Education Department's spokesperson, told the Des Moines Register. Beyond the December deadline, the Department of Education has, has not issued a timeline for when Iowa school districts will receive guidance. Previously, state officials advised school district staff to consult with their attorneys on how to best comply with the law. The rulemaking process will include publicly posting the proposed guidance, a public comment period, and the release and adoption of the final rules. The Board of Education's next meeting is November 15th. Does Senate File 496 go beyond banning books with sex acts? Yes. The law also bans instruction and discussion through sixth grade about gender identity and sexual orientation. It also requires educators to notify a child's parents or guardians if the student requests to use pronouns that differ from their sex at birth or asks to be called by a different name. Some school district officials have interpreted this part of the law to mean caregivers must give permission for a student to be called by a nickname. What are the penalties if books depicting sex remain on school shelves? After the January deadline, state officials will give first-time offenders a written warning. Subsequent violations could lead to superintendents and employees being called before the Iowa Board of Education examiners for a hearing and possible disciplinary action. The board is the state's licensing agency for K-12 educators. Have Iowa schools begun removing books? Yes. More than 1,000 books have already been removed from 39 public school districts, according to data collected by the Des Moines Register as part of its Iowa's Book Ban Battle series. The Register began collecting information in May about the number of books challenged and removed from Iowa public school districts. What has been the reaction to the law requiring books be removed? For months, school administrators and education advocates across the state have asked state officials for help implementing the new requirements. Some administrators have balked at removing any material until there is guidance. Authors around the country have voiced concerns over Iowa's book bans. Friday Night Lights author H.G. Buzz Bissinger 
reached out to Mason City Community School District officials to request administrators reconsider removing his 1990 book from its collection. Friday Night Lights was one of 19 books initially culled from Mason City's collection in August. At the time, the district made national headlines for being one of the first known school districts to use ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence system, to help with the vetting process. Quote, it's frightening right now, and all these book bans are getting out of control, end quote, Bissinger told USA Today Sports in early September. He goes on to say it's also going to be a snowball. The bans keep happening and spreading, and I feel like people aren't aware of this. Freedom of speech and freedom of democracy is what makes this country a great place, and we're seeing people try to reverse some of that by banning books, end quote. Bissinger's intervention led to the book's return to Mason City Schools' shelves. Has the bill affected districts in unexpected ways? The new law advertently impacted school districts that share resources with public libraries and led at least two school districts to place disclaimers on nearby little free libraries. As many as eight Iowa public school districts share resources or space with public libraries in an effort to stretch limited funds and expand services. Ahead of the 2023-2024 school year, officials scrambled to recode hundreds of library books, while others discussed ending decades-long partnerships in an effort to comply with the law. Education advocates told lawmakers before Senate File 496 passed that the law would could put these agreements in jeopardy. Lawmakers chose not to exempt these schools from the law. Quote, this wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card for seven or eight schools that had an arrangement with a library, end quote. Iowa Senate Education Committee Chair Ken Rosenboom, a Republican for Os- from Oskaloosa, told the Register in early August. In September, the Register reported that West Des Moines Community Schools and the Urbandale Community School District had placed disclaimers on little free libraries near district schools. Outside Webster Elementary in Urbandale, a message attached to the little library reads, quote, This little library is not funded, sponsored, endorsed, or maintained by the Urbandale Community School District and is not in any way part of the Urbandale Schools Library Program, end quote. Some school districts, like Des Moines Public Schools, chose not to post disclaimers. What has Governor Kim Reynolds said about the implementation of SF-496? Asked Wednesday about schools removing some classic books under SF-496, including 1984 or Brave New World, Governor Kim Reynolds says, The law is very clear. Reynolds put on red reading glasses and read aloud from a printed section of Iowa law that explicitly defines which sexual activities are now barred from books in schools. Quote, I don't remember this actually being in the classical books that I may have read when I was in school. I recognize that was many, many, many years ago, end quote, she said wryly. Reynolds recalled a television interview she gave about All Boys Aren't Blue, one of the high-profile books that sparked controversy in Iowa. Reynolds read an explicit passage from the memoir that detailed then 13-year-old author George M. Johnson and a male cousin in his late teens engaging in oral sex, a sexual assault that had a lasting impact on Johnson's life. Quote, We are way off course. Our kids and our teachers deserve better, end quote, Reynolds said. She goes on to say, they deserve the tools to help these kids succeed, not a damn distraction on a nasty pornographic book that should never, ever be in a classroom, end quote. Linda? Benton County fires its entire health board over budget hike. The Benton County Board of Supervisors abruptly fired all members of its county health board earlier this month, offering an explanation that has raised more questions than answers. 
After sending termination letters October 3rd to all five members of the Benton County Board of Health, the Benton County Supervisors clarified their decision Tuesday, issuing a statement through the county attorney's office that said the primary reason for the action was to reverse the 130% increase in the budget implemented by the Benton County Board of Health. Former Board of Health members who had not received any explanation as to why they were terminated from their voluntary board positions until Tuesday say they are baffled. The Board of Supervisors had approved the funding increase earlier this month, not the Board of Health. In addition, the budget amendment was the result of a proposal the Board of Supervisors supported and which health board members say they had cautioned against because it ultimately would cost the county more money. If they did not want to approve the funds that were being requested by the Board of Health, they could have simply denied them through the budget amendment process, said Caitlin Emmerich, a former Board of Health member who is also the director of the Black Hawk County Health Department. Benton County Board of Supervisors and the Benton County Attorney's Office declined to comment further. In a letter signed by all three Benton County Supervisors, members of the County Board of Health were notified their appointment to the board was terminated, effective immediately. No cause was cited in the October 3rd letter, which was sent to board members' homes. An explanation came in a second letter dated October 6th, in which the county supervisors cited a section of Iowa law and stated the board, quote, has chosen pursuant to its powers not to continue your appointment. The abrupt firings, as well as the supervisor's silence, have left larger questions on how the county intends to manage public health and environmental health services moving forward, now that Benton County has gone without a Board of Health for nearly a month. In Iowa, county boards of health oversee environmental health and public health services, such as investigations for communicable disease outbreaks or lead poisoning prevention efforts. Collectively, the Benton County board members had 21 years of experience on the Board of Health, and many of its members were instrumental in local public health initiatives in the county and across eastern Iowa, said Dr. Margaret Mangold, former chairperson of the Benton County Board of Health. We had a vision, and I'm just really afraid that all of that institutional knowledge is lost, Mangold said. Those years of building those relationships and strengthening community partnerships is just going to go away. Earlier this year, the Board of Health and the Board of Supervisors were entrenched in discussions about shifting the county's public health model after the county's sole hospital ended its long-time contract to offer public health services to Benton County. In many of Iowa's counties, local hospitals subcontract with county health departments to offer public health services. Until earlier this year, that had been the case in Benton County. Virginia Gay Hospital in Vinton elected to end its nearly 30-year agreement with the Benton County Board of Health and the Benton County Board of Supervisors as of June 30th and announced the hospital would no longer provide public health services. The decision was, in part, driven by state officials' recent push to focus on population-based health services instead of direct health services that local public health departments traditionally offered in the past. 
In a letter dated March 1st, the hospital's board of directors decided this recent shift indicated it was a good time for the hospital to step away from public health duties and focus on home health and other services for our patients. As a result, the county had to develop a plan to provide those public health services to residents, Mangold said. In developing a county-based system for public health and environmental health services, the Benton County Board of Health members came up with two options for the next steps, as outlined in minutes from a May Board of Supervisors meeting. Board of Health members preferred the first option, Mangold said, because it would be less expensive by requiring the hiring of one administrator to oversee public health and environmental services. However, the Board of Supervisors opted for the second proposal, which would keep the county's environmental health and public health wings separate meaning the county would have to maintain two administrator positions. Both Mangold and Emmerich said health board members made it clear the new model would result in a need for more funding. The Board of Supervisors voted to approve that measure in a May 2nd meeting, with no discussion among the supervisors. The statement that came out Tuesday that they're dissatisfied with the 130% increase in the budget doesn't really align with the decisions that were made and in conversations that we were having in April and May, Emmerich said. Last month, the Benton County Board of Health put forth a request to amend the county's budget to allocate an additional $74,202 to the board. The funding would be used to hire a full-time public health staff member, a move the board said would help support the public health administrator. However, Benton County Auditor Haley Ripple said the Board of Health's total request amounted to $136,565, including $62,363 the board was expecting from a state grant. Ripple said the county used that amount in its calculations, meaning the Board of Health's total budget for the rest of the fiscal year totaled $320,205, a roughly 74% increase from the $183,640 originally allocated to the board at the beginning of the year. But if the county receives that state grant, the Board of Health's new budget would be $218,026, which is about a 19% increase from the department's original allocation. The 130% increase cited by the Board of Supervisors is the difference between the 136565 figure in additional funds the Board of Health requested and the new budget total of $320,205. The proposal was brought by Benton County Public Health Director Grace Petrozelka in the September 19th Supervisors Meeting. Supervisors did not raise concerns about the request during the meeting. The Board of Supervisors approved the Public Health Budget Amendment on October 3rd. That same day, the Board of Supervisors sent termination notices to the members of the Board of Health. Following the ouster, the Benton County Board of Supervisors indicated there were plans to build a new county health board, according to other reports. Mangold said she's concerned about the steps the supervisors plan to take to build a new Board of Health, stating the board is meant to be autonomous from the County Board of Supervisors. 
the board members are not supposed to be under the supervisors. It's not the supervisor's job to build a board, Mangold said. They appoint them, but the Board of Health should feel like they can tackle sometimes controversial things in communities related to health. Thank you, Linda. That concludes the articles on the front page of the register. I'm going to turn to the Metro and Iowa section where the top story is Senator Tim Scott makes pitch that he's more electable. Presidential hopeful steps up ground game in Iowa. It's written by William Morris and Virginia Bereda of the Des Moines Register. Republican presidential candidate Tim Scott's multi-day bus tour this week signaled a new campaign strategy to step up his ground game in the Hawkeye State. But only time will tell the effort, if the effort, will pay off with Iowa caucus goers. Scott, who has not qualified to appear on the November 8th GOP presidential debate stage in Miami, has seen his national campaign sputter. His polling has remained in the single digits amid mounting pressure to differentiate himself from frontrunner former President Donald Trump and other candidates. More recently, his allied super PAC recently announced it would cancel most of the remaining $40 million in fall TV ad spending it had reserved on Scott's behalf ahead of the caucuses. In an attempt to regain footing, Scott's team this week announced an aggressive campaign shift to Iowa with plans to double staff, establish a West Des Moines headquarters, and campaign weekly in the first in the nation state after the November presidential debate. Scott's revival trip came in the form of a five-day good news bus tour, which included seven stops across the state, starting with Representative Marionette Miller Meek's Triple M tailgate fundraiser Friday. On Saturday, he held a meet and greet in Maquoketa and joined Senator Chuck Grassley for more tailgating outside a University of Northern Iowa football game. At the City Limits restaurant in Maquoketa, Scott focused heavily on the recent outbreak of war between Israel and Hamas and the need for America to support Israel. Echoing criticisms he's made since Hamas's October 7th attacks against Israel, he criticized the Biden administration's response and said a funding bill proposed by the president should be rejected for including more military aid for Ukraine than for Israel. In addition to foreign policy, attendees also had questions about the federal budget, drug prices, and other domestic issues. Afterward, Maquoketa residents Joe Martin, age 79, and her husband Ray, age 81, said they were impressed by Scott's talk, but were still leaning toward supporting Trump in the caucus. Quote, how can one person do what Trump did, kept everything up and running, and as soon as someone else takes over, everything goes downhill, end quote, Ray Martin asked. Their only reservation about Trump was a concern about his electability. Quote, there's so many people who believe everything they hear against him and don't want him to be president, end quote, Joe Martin said. Scott, or any of the other Republicans seeking to wrest the nomination from Trump, will need to win over at least some of his supporters. But asked what it would take to shift their preference from Trump to Scott, the Martins couldn't say. Similar statements were felt, excuse me, similar sentiments were felt the following week as Scott continued his bus tour Monday night at a town hall in Marshalltown and Tuesday with meet and greet stops in Indianola and Creston and at a forum hosted by the American Free Enterprise Chamber of Commerce in Griswold. After the Marshalltown event, several voters said they were still, quote, up in the air, end quote, and liked what they heard from Scott, but they struggled to say what it would take to make him their top pick in the caucus. Quote, I think he's shown who he is as a senator. He does what he says he does, end quote, said Cindy Page, a 67-year-old Republican who drove from Cedar Falls with a friend to hear Scott speak. Quote, I think he just needs to be who he is, end quote. Larry Madison calls Scott a, quote, common sense, uh, unquote, candidate and a person you'd like to have sitting in your living room. Quote, he's not putting on a show. He's just Tim Scott, 
and that's what I really enjoy hearing, end quote, he said after listening to Scott speak in Griswold. Madison, who drove nearly an hour from Harlan to see Scott, lists him among his top three picks alongside former North Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He said in order for Scott to rise to the top is an issue of visibility. Quote, in my mind, oftentimes a lot of people vote based on what they see and what they hear, and so I think the visibility is a major factor, end quote, Madison said. He goes on to say, so it's probably just being able to, you know, meet the public and let people hear his message, end quote. Tim Scott faces pressure to differentiate himself from Trump opponents. Although Scott has been loath to talk about other Republican candidates, he's facing increasing pressure to differentiate himself from other candidates and in particular frontrunner Trump. According to an August Des Moines Register slash NBC News Iowa poll, Scott had a higher net favorability rating than any other candidate in the field, with 59% of likely Republican caucus goers saying they had a favorable view of him. Another 17% said they had an unfavorable view of him. That poll showed him in third place with 9% of the vote. But a real clear politics rolling average of more recent Iowa polling shows him in fifth place with 6%, behind Trump at 50%, DeSantis at 17%, Haley at 9.5%, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy at 6%. Still, that's better than Scott is doing nationally, where he is the first choice candidate among just 2%. At Monday's town hall, he was asked why voters should turn against Trump and made an unusually explicit electability argument against the former candidate. Quote, I don't think he can win, end quote, Scott said. He goes on to say, you have to be able to win in Georgia. I don't think he can win in Georgia. You have to be able to win in Pennsylvania, end quote. The problem, Scott said, is not Trump's policies, which he supported, but how he is viewed by persuadable voters. Quote, we have to be able to win independence without watering down our message, end quote, he said. He goes on to say, we have to have a consistently conservative message and a messenger who can persuade. Not only can I keep conservatives excited and motivated, I can attract independence. If you are a conservative in your philosophy, I want you to be part of the team. And if you're not a conservative in philosophy, you don't want me anyways, end quote. Creston resident Tim Haney, who saw Scott speak for the third time on Tuesday at a pizza ranch in Creston, said Scott is his favorite candidate. But in terms of electability, Haney ranks Trump and DeSantis over Scott. Haney, a member of the Urban, or excuse me, Union County Central Committee, says he's not sure who would have to change to solidify his vote for Scott over the other two candidates but he said his mind changes daily. Quote, It's tough on me because if any one of those three wins the primary, they're electable, end quote, Haney said. He goes on to say it's not a matter of electability on the national level if they're on the general election ticket. Haney considers himself a Trump fan, but he said if Scott starts to poll better, he could envision himself caucusing for Scott. Haney said it's a matter of Scott gaining a momentum swing and lauded his efforts in rural Iowa. Quote, he's a godly man and he speaks the truth. I just love that guy, end quote, Haney said of Scott. He goes on to say, I would love for him to be our primary choice, but I don't know if he can be. I'm confident Trump will be our candidate and I'm okay with that. And he's been number one for me, end quote. Tim Scott plans to be in Iowa weekly after November the 8th. Scott says he plans to campaign in Iowa every week until the January 15th caucuses following the debate in November. According to his campaign, Scott hopes to use the shift in resources to help tap into the support of evangelical Christians who make up a sizable share of the Iowa caucus-going electorate to help close the gap. Scott hasn't been shy about his campaign pivot. Quote, I believe everything starts in Iowa, end quote, he told the Marshalltown audience. I've moved my whole operations here. 
He also touched on his Iowa First game plan at the Pizza Ranch in Creston, attempting to flatter the roughly 20 audience members. Quote, the road to the White House starts here. It doesn't start anywhere else, end quote, Scott said. He goes on to say, the picture I have in November of 2024 is having not only won the nomination, but won the presidency. In order to make that happen, you gotta do it here, end quote. Linda? Trial begins for second driver in Fleur Drive fatal crash. Keith Jones, whose vehicle was not involved, left the scene. The second driver blamed for a Des Moines crash that killed a four-year-old child in December is arguing to the jury in his trial that he can't have been drag racing before the fatal collision because his car was too fast. Keith Jones, 48, is charged with multiple vehicular homicide and serious injury charges, as well as leaving the scene of the December 13th crash that killed Marcus Faguada and seriously injured Marcus's aunt, Mayra de Catalan. His trial began this week, two months after another driver involved in the crash was sentenced to serve 30 years in prison. Prosecutors say Jones and Robert Miller III spent several hours drinking together at the Wicked Rabbit Bar on Des Moines' south side, then left together and raced along Army Post Road and up Fleur Drive until reaching the area of Gray's Lake where Miller lost control and crossed into the southbound lanes, striking Decathlon's vehicle. Jones, whose vehicle was not involved in the crash, left the scene and was later arrested after his SUV was found in Chicago. Like Miller, Jones faces separate homicide charges for OWI, reckless driving, and drag racing. In her opening statement Tuesday, Prosecutor Jackie Livingston said video evidence from inside the bar and along the roads support all three charges. She told jurors Jones had at least six shots and two mixed drinks over two and a half hours, then left the bar at the same time as Miller, the two leaving the parking lot from different exits. And immediately, the race was on, Livingston said. Her first several witnesses backed up that account, with an employee at a nearby business and another driver who the two passed on Fleur, describing them as rapidly and loudly accelerating from stoplights and weaving in and out of traffic. His actions were his own, Livingston said of Jones, his actions were deliberate. His actions are what caused the crash. Defense attorney Van Plum acknowledged to jurors that Jones and Miller were speeding and that Jones made a very bad decision in not contacting law enforcement after he learned what had happened in the crash. But he said the evidence will show Jones had fewer drinks than Livingston claimed, and that his driving had not been as dangerous as she claimed. After hearing all the evidence, there will be no evidence, folks, that he was intoxicated, Plum said. There will be no evidence he was driving recklessly, cutting people off, making them slam on their brakes. There will be no evidence he was engaged in a drag race. In particular, Plum drew attention to the vehicles involved. Jones was driving a BMW SUV, while Miller was driving a Hyundai Genesis. The BMW can accelerate from 0 to 100 miles per hour in about 6 seconds, Plum said, while the Hyundai takes 16 seconds to reach the same speed. The evidence will show you that if Mr. Miller and Mr. Jones were engaged in a drag race when they hit the open road and can floor it, Mr. Miller's car doesn't stay with Mr. Jones's, Plum said. 
Instead, he said, Miller was ahead of Jones when he lost control and crashed, disproving the allegation the two were racing. Jones is expected to testify later in the trial, and like Miller, faces potentially decades in prison if convicted. He also is scheduled for trial next month in an unrelated felony sex abuse case, which was filed just weeks before the Fleur Drive crash. Our next article is entitled, Iowa Discloses Previously Withheld Facts in Chiropractor Case. It's on page 3C of the Metro section. It's written by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The state of Iowa has now disclosed the allegations of impropriety it levied against an Ottumwa chiropractor seven months ago. The records show the chiropractor faced disciplinary charges related to the same alleged conduct in the year 2022, resulting in his license being suspended and then reinstated. This time, the conduct resulted in the chiropractor agreeing to surrender his license. The disclosure, made in response to a formal open records law request from the Iowa Capital Dispatch, comes in the wake of the state asserting that specific allegations of misconduct made against licensed professionals are considered investigative information that must be kept confidential. It's not clear whether the new disclosure in the Iowa Board of Chiropractic's case involving Bruce Lindbergh represents a reversal of that position. While the state did disclose the specific allegations in one case against Lindbergh, it did not acknowledge the Capital Dispatch's request for information in a separate case involving him. The newly disclosed information involves the board's March 2023 allegation that on February 16th of the year 2022, Lindbergh performed chiropractic adjustments on a 10-year-old male child without the consent of the child's parents. Lindbergh allegedly kissed the child on the top of his head, hugged him, and commented on how cute he was while telling him he could come back any time, that he did not have to bring his mom, and that he could bring his friends. Public access to board charges has fluctuated. Over the past three years, public access to information from Iowa's licensing boards has fluctuated. Prior to the October 2021 all state licenses licensing boards publicly disclosed charges against practitioners at the time they were filed or at the time the practitioners were notified of the charges. That disclosure included not just the charges themselves, which are often vague, such as professional incompetence or unethical conduct but also the specific underlying conduct that gave rise to the charges, such as a botched surgery or the theft of a patient's medications. In October of the year 2021, the Iowa Supreme Court ruled that the basic facts and circumstances surrounding disciplinary action against licensed professionals must be kept confidential at least until the licensing boards issue their final rulings in the matter a process that sometimes takes years. The court's decision was based on a statute limiting release of investigative information gathered as part of a complaint against a licensee. The court concluded that the basic facts and circumstances surrounding a case are investigative in nature and therefore confidential. In the aftermath of that decision, most of Iowa's licensing boards began issuing redacted statements of charges to keep secret the basic facts and circumstances of cases. Once the matter was finalized, that same information was made public. Recently, however, some boards have taken the position that the basic facts and circumstances must remain sealed from public view even after the case is finalized. For example, the Iowa Board of Nursing has repeatedly refused a request from the Capital Dispatch for an unredacted copy of the written statement of charges against a nurse, Alicia Davis, whose license has been revoked. The redacted portion of that document outlines the specific conduct that led to the charges against Davis. In the Board of Chiropractic case involving Lindbergh, the board recently resolved the case with a settlement calling for Lindbergh to surrender his license. 
but the basic facts and circumstances in that case remained sealed until an open records law request was filed by the Capitol Dispatch. That led to the unredacted version of the statement of charges being published on the website of the recently formed Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, which now oversees many of the state's licensing boards. State's position remains unclear. It's not clear whether the disclosure in the Lindbergh case represents a reversal of the state's position on public access to such information. The Board of Nursing has yet to disclose the requested information in the Davis case, and the Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing disposed of the Capital Dispatch's request for information on a second disciplinary case involving Lindbergh without turning over the information or making a claim of confidentiality. In a written statement, it said that it is still working on the broader issue of public access to licensing board information. Quote, about three months ago on July the 1st, approximately 30 licensing boards from four different agencies were realigned into one department, the Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, end quote, the department said. It goes on to say the goal of DIAL has been to standardize, modernize, and simplify its processes in order to promote best practices across the entire department and provide Iowans great service. The department is working closely with the Attorney General's office to ensure all information is timely and accurate provided to the public timely and accurately provided to the public in accordance with Iowa law. End quote. Board had previously reinstated Lindbergh's license. Lindbergh's license issue date Back, licensing issues date back to 1990 when he was sentenced to six years of probation after being convicted on two counts of indecent contact with children and two counts of indecent exposure. Court records indicate the victims in the 1989 case were minors and that some were high school athletes. Months after Lindbergh was convicted, the Board of Chiropractic initiated disciplinary proceedings against him. He eventually agreed to surrender his license pending the completion of counseling and periodic evaluations. At some point, the Board reinstated Lindbergh's license, which remained active until shortly after his April 2022 arrest on a charge of simple assault involving the 10-year-old boy. A few weeks after his arrest, Lindbergh agreed to stop seeing patients until the criminal case was, was resolved and his chiropractic license was suspended. In July of 2022, a judge dismissed the criminal charge, which led to the Board of Chiropractic agreeing to reinstate Lindbergh's license. In March of 2023, however, the board levied its most recent set of charges against Lindbergh, accusing him, uh, accusing him of professional incompetence, negligence in practice of the profession, unethical conduct through verbal or physical abuse or through improper sexual conduct, unprofessional conduct in connection with the practice of chiropractic, and the violation of regulation of or law related to record keeping. The new disclosures in that case make clear the charges grew out of the same alleged conduct that led to the licensing board charges in the year 2022. You can find this story at Iowa Capital Dispatch, which is part of State's Newsroom, a network of news bureaus supported by grants and a coalition of donors as a 501c3 public charity. Iowa Capital Dispatch maintains editorial independence. Contact editor Kathy Obradovich for questions, and she can be reached at kobradovich at iowacapitaldispatch.com. See what Major Des Moines Road is getting a $17.5 million overhaul. An estimated $17.5 million overhaul of the 2nd Avenue corridor on Des Moines' northwest side is moving forward. The Des Moines City Council on Monday approved construction bids to revamp 2nd Avenue from University Avenue to the Des Moines River. 
The project is part of a larger effort that started last year to make several major infrastructure renovations to Second Avenue, which includes replacing the Second Avenue bridge over Birdland Drive, installing a new storm sewer along the west side of Second Avenue, and repairing its roadways and intersections. The reconstruction of the bridge over Birdland Drive and the rehabilitation of the 2nd Avenue bridge over the Des Moines River, costing a combined $10 million, was completed in the summer of 2023. The 2nd Avenue reconstruction project encompasses the roughly one-mile stretch from University Avenue to the Des Moines River, according to a council communications memo. City officials say the makeover, which will include everything from pavement reconstruction to water main replacement, is expected to improve safety on the corridor, according to a traffic study completed in 2019. The project could impact 52 properties along the stretch, most notably the Planned Parenthood warehouse on 123 Clark Street, which the city purchased for $1.4 million from the organization through a voluntary agreement in May, city engineer Steve Neighbor previously told the Des Moines Register. According to the city, here's what's included in the reconstruction. Full pavement reconstruction of four lanes with 11-foot-wide lanes, new curbs and gutters, and new 5-foot-wide sidewalks on both sides. Realignment of the east leg of Forest Avenue at the intersection of 2nd Avenue to align with the west leg of Forest and 2nd Intersection. Realignment of the east leg of Clark Street at the intersection of 2nd Avenue to align with the west leg of the Clark and 2nd intersection. Adding left turn lanes at the following inter intersections along 2nd Avenue, Franklin, College, and Forest Avenues, and Clark Street. Eliminating and or consolidating driveway accesses along the corridor to reduce the number of conflict points and turning movements. Installing new stormwater sewer along the west side of 2nd Avenue from College Avenue to the Des Moines River. Replacing the water main under 2nd Avenue by Des Moines Waterworks. According to the city, drivers can expect road closures and lane reductions during construction. Second Avenue will have one lane of traffic in each direction open at a time. For the most part, there will be driveway access points along the corridor through temporary gravel access, except when construction is occurring immediately in front of the access or the access is being replaced, according to the city. So when does this begin? Construction is slated to start in 2024 and wrap up by the fall of 2026, according to the council memo. Utility work could start in the fall of 2023. Reynolds says husband is doing well with therapy. First gentleman being treated for cancer, lung cancer. This is written by Katie Aiken of the Des Moines Register. Iowa First Gentleman Kevin Reynolds is doing well after his first month of treatment for lung cancer, Governor Kim Reynolds told reporters Wednesday. Kevin Reynolds was diagnosed with lung cancer in late September. Kim Reynolds said his diagnosis was a gut punch. The first gentleman had never smoked, and he sought treatment for what the family thought was a ruptured disc. Quote, I'm happy to say that the radiation has really kicked the pain that was in his spine, so that has been a true blessing and has helped his attitude quite a bit to not be in so much pain, Kim Reynolds said Wednesday. The first gentleman is on a breakthrough oral immune therapy drug, which will hopefully eliminate the need for chemotherapy. Kim Reynolds said it was a bright spot to see the innovative new treatments available for cancer patients, and she praised the medical Stoddard Cancer Center, where Kevin is receiving care. 
We're just taking it one step at a time, but he's doing well, she said. Kim Reynolds got teary-eyed as she thanked Iowans for their prayers and well wishes. Quote, every day we get a card or two or three in the mail to say that we're praying for you. You'll be in our prayers, she said. I think it's just another reflection of Iowans who we and who we are. It matters and it makes a difference, end quote. 